Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk executive producer Rob Perra. Danny will be conducting interviews here every day, talking with experts on food and agriculture and discussing topics like the impact of COVID-19 on the food system, unsung food heroes, how climate change continues to be a threat to agriculture, and other pressing social and environmental challenges that impact farmers, eaters, and the economy. On today's episode, Danny talks with Jason Lusk about the economics of food production and distribution during the COVID-19 pandemic. Please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and also share this episode on your social media channels. Enjoy the show. Before we begin, I just want to give a quick shout out to a member of the Food Tank family. That's Victoria Pollock. She is the the wife of my co-founder, Bernie Pollock. She uh, is in a a nursing doctoral program at Columbia University in New York City. And today she and other nursing students joined um, uh, their colleagues at Columbia Presbyterian to, uh, you know, help the COVID-19 relief efforts. So my heart goes out to all of those uh, frontline responders, to all of the grocery store workers and uh, truck drivers and farmers and everyone else who is keeping us healthy and fed during this very, very stressful time. Um, I am so excited because I get to talk to a really good friend of of Food Tank, uh, uh, Jason Lusk. He is the head of the Department of Agricultural Economics at Purdue University. And he, again, has been just really good to me and Food Tank over the years. Um, and I'm hoping he can provide some insight on the current uh, situation with COVID-19, how it's sort of affecting not only agriculture, but the world economy. Um, the myth of food scarcity, maybe, if, if we can get to that. And the real fragility of our food distribution uh, systems. Um, before we begin, Jason, I just want to make sure you and your family and your colleagues are all safe and healthy. So far, so good. Um, like everybody else, I'm working from home. I didn't even go with any pretenses that I would be, uh, you know, business up top and casual down below. I just went all casual. <laughs> you look uh, great. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, yes, you know, at the university, we've been, um, this was our, our first week back, uh, supposedly from spring break, but everything's been moved uh, online. And so it's been a time of transition and change. But so far, everybody in my world is healthy, which is good. Midwesterners, I'm, everyone knows who listens to this uh, this live cast and the podcast knows I'm from the Midwest. We're resilient people. We can we can get through anything. So I'm I'm glad you're staying safe. Um, so I, I just kind of want to dive right in. You were quoted in the Philadelphia uh, Inquirer uh, last week, I think it was, about COVID nineteen. And a little bit more, I, I want you to dive in a little bit if you can about how fragile our food supply chain is, and, and especially during a crisis like this one and how things are affected? Well, I think it's, you know, I guess I'm a pretty mixed mind. In some ways, our recent experience suggests both how resilient and how fragile our food system can yeah. be. So, you know, what do I mean by that? You know, I think our food system is largely designed to give us the food when we want it. And I think, you know, before this situation happened. I was in lots of conferences and seminars where one of the things we talk about is maybe there's too much choice sometimes and how much, mm-hmm. you know, too much variety there is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's not the complaint I've heard in the last few weeks. And, um, uh, but, you know, partly in response to trying to cut down on food waste and some things like that, retailers, you know, really designed for just-in-time delivery. To, they don't want a bunch of inventory sitting around that might sure. be wasted and it's not um, economical 
economical for them to be sitting on sure. you know produce they don't want to they want they don't want to move but you know when we see what we've seen over the last couple of weeks there's a huge temporary uh demand increase um yeah. you know, from, from some of the statistics i've seen you know almost a 300 percent increase in foot traffic into a lot of wow. retail grocery establishments a lot of that's because two reasons people are um not eating as much away from home at restaurants mm -hmm. and the other thing is you know out of concerns about reduced mobility or that we may not be able to get out of the house and frankly a little bit of fear people are just stocking up and and you know this is when you have that level of increase in demand you know the system's not really set up to uh, resolve right. that immediately and i think that's you know so I, you know what i'm starting to see at least in my own local markets is we the system's starting to recover some shelves are mm -hmm. being you know, much more fully stocked uh, you may not I, I haven't seen in any of the situations i've been in at least where there's been shelves that have been stocked out in no case has there been nothing to buy so you might have to try something you haven't had before maybe a different flavor or a different variety but there's been food it may not be the exact food that you want i think the fragility part you know i think and um you know kind of I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out the longer, hopefully this doesn't go on much longer, but the longer it plays out related to issues about, you know, concentration and um, our sort of global sourcing of food. You know, I've personally been a big fan of some of those things, not concentration per se, but um, that, you know, some of the benefits that those kinds of food systems can deliver to us in terms of cost. But when you start thinking about, okay, I've got a, I have a really large packing plant, whether it's, you know, meat or, vegetables if one of my workers gets sick and i have to shut down this whole plant and it's a large portion of our food supply what does that do to the whole system fortunately we haven't really seen that yet but that's the kind of vulnerability that has me a little more concerned yeah it has us all a little bit more on edge and i and i mean i've heard you and, and many other economists say that it's never been a matter of, of scarcity of food, whether we're talking about the United States or we're talking about the world, it's the distribution and the distribution sort of logistics that have, have been the problem and the policy around uh, distribution. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, we, we have enough food. You talked about food waste. We have more than enough food, but why are we not? I mean, we've been good at distributing it, but may, why is like a crisis like COVID-19 causing some, you know, questions about how we distribute food? Well, I think it really gets to an issue I know that you talk a lot about, Danny, and that you're very passionate about, and that's the people, you know, the workers that are involved in our food supply chain. So we, we can have all the food in the world, but if we don't have the people to get it to us, you know, we're still going to go hungry. And I think that's, you know, even in my own local grocery store, the first time I noticed kind of a big stock stocking out, um, I asked some of the workers there, I said, what's going on? <laughs> and, um, you know, one of the things they told me is that people didn't show up to work. You know, they were concerned about getting out. Um, and also just they had, you know, they were having to, to work so many hours to try to restock things that uh, people just weren't there. And, you know, all these people you interact with on a daily basis in our food supply chain, you know, to be honest, even as somebody that studies the food system, it's kind of easy to take all those people for granted that that are really responsible for getting that food here. So it's the workers that are stocking the shelves that are checking us out, but it's the people that are driving the trucks and the warehouses. And then, you know, eventually depending on how much longer this goes on, the people in the fields harvesting. Um, and so I think that's where, you know, where some of this concern and challenge in the food system has come about is in the people side of it. And if this virus 
you know, spreads to more people. That's, you know, so far I think we've been okay. There's been some temporary disruptions, but I think that's what I have my eye out for is keeping out what's happening to the people side of this because I think that's where the potential vulnerabilities are. Absolutely. I'm glad that you brought up um, truck drivers. I mean, they're not somebody I thought about a lot until this happened. And I'm somebody who thinks about food, you know, all of the time and, 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 you know, tries to think about workers and tries to, you know, uh, sort of amplify the organizations that are um, committed to improving the rights of workers. So it's, it's startling to me that there are all these, you know, even for someone like you and me who who think about these things all the time, there are all these invisible hands that I hadn't thought about before, who I hadn't thought about before. And it's, you know, we need to to give them some some more credit for what they're doing. You know, they're not paid well in in so many circumstances. So, you know, uh, just another shout out to them. Uh, Jason, I'm, I'm interested in also hearing so, you know, hopefully this crisis isn't long-term. Hopefully, you know, in, in a few months, things are, are sort of back to some semblance of order. But what, what if that doesn't happen? And, and what are your sort of your predictions for a timeline of, of when, you know, our, our production and distribution systems, you know, it's spring, farmers are planting. How, how much do you think that will be affected um, how much do you think our, our agricultural production and distribution will be affected by COVID-19? So I, I see a couple of phenomena happen. One is I think in the short term, we're likely to see food prices increase. We're already starting to see that at the wholesale level. So uh, things like eggs, for example, have just skyrocketed, you know, like a 300% increase. Uh, even for a lot of meat items, you know, it's been 10 to 20% increases in, in wholesale prices. So you know, that's the short-term phenomenon. And I think the longer this goes on, it, you know, this we'll see, we'll see some of that, but I think that will start to subside. And part of the reason is related to what you said is, um, you know, there's, there's enough supply there and particularly on the animal agriculture side, we, we were, we, we, we were already anticipating some pretty large production side, right. uh, you know, just, you know, more pounds being produced, which was going to put downward pressure on prices. So I think what we're seeing now are the two things I already mentioned before, this reallocation of food from grocery stores to restaurants. I mean, mm-hmm. other way around, restaurants to grocery stores. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that that takes time and takes transactions costs. So that's one of the things that's putting pressure on prices. And then, and then the other thing is people just buying more um, in the right. short term. But it's not like, you know, I don't think a symptom of COVID-19 is eating more food. So uh, right. we've moved in. <laughs> inventory uh, from grocery stores to our kitchens. Um, but, you know, hopefully that won't result in food waste, but that also means we're not going to need as much in the future mm-hmm. going forward. So that's going to put downward pressure on food prices. Moreover, I think when I look kind of globally, some of the our big export markets for many ag products are some of the countries that have been hardest hit by COVID-19. So China, Absolutely. Japan, South Korea. And so that's going to leave, you know, it's not because COVID-19 hit, but because really the recessions that are likely to follow that, that's going to reduce incomes, is going to probably reduce their purchases of our food, which is going to put, you know, leave more food on our domestic market, putting downward pressure on food prices. So I, I think um, that food prices will, will start to will increase, but then start to come down. Uh, on the planting side, which is the question you asked me more directly, um, you know, I think we're okay for right now. I mean, you know, at least in the big, large-scale commodity crops, corn, wheat, soybeans, um, wheat, it depends which kind of wheat we're talking about. But here in the Midwest, corn and soybeans, um, you know, planting is about right now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of 
this kind of farming is practiced by social distance. You know, it's, it's a big, sure. big equipment with a handful of people that are running the planter or the tractors in the field. So I, I'm optimistic we'll be okay there. I, you know, I think the things that are a little more, more vulnerable are the fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, sure. So California, Texas, Florida, that requires a lot more labor, both in planting and in harvesting. And that's going to start sooner uh, rather than later. And, you know, are we going to, a lot of that require, relies on immigrant labor. And right. I know we've had some. picking. Yep, exactly. And so we've, you know, there have been some restrictions, at least on granting new um visas for new workers coming in. My understanding is people that are already allowed to come in are, can do that. But again, I think that's going to put pressure on those. So I think it's the, it's the kind of fresh fruit and vegetable um, yeah. side of the food supply that I think in the next few weeks are ones to really keep an eye out on. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned concentration in, in agriculture before. Do you foresee a situation where this you know, because of, of higher prices in the short term, that this really is a is sort of a, a boon for, for big farmers, for, you know, big commodity producers, for the folks who are involved in, in sort of large scale animal production. Do you think they're going to come out of this maybe a little bit better off than they would have if this hadn't happened? It's hard to say. I mean, in the, in the short term, what what all is happening? I mean, I can certainly tell you my cattle friends are were really uh, frustrated that at the same time, wholesale meat prices were skyrocketing, cattle prices have been falling. So wow. essentially that gap between, um, you know, the price packers were receiving and what they were paying for cattle yeah. Uh, yeah. seemed to be growing. Uh, I, you know, I think, you know, there's always a possibility for market power, more money to be made there. There are also really good reasons why that's happening in the moment, mm. economic reasons that you you would expect. Um, because, you again, you have this, you know, temporary run-up in, in demand, uh, but at the same time, packers are unsure um, if they're going to be able to process cattle, if they're going to have the workers to do it. So their demand for cattle kind of falls at the same time. It produces sure. this kind of gap between the two. So I, you know, I think it's one to keep an eye out on and see how that uh, emerges over the next uh, several weeks and months. Sure. And, and of course, the flip side of that is there's a lot of you know they're losing a lot of these packers are losing a lot of business on the retail on the grocery on the Sorry, I keep getting those people too. That's okay. On the uh, restaurant side of things, yeah. um, which is going to have some trickle-on effects too. Absolutely, absolutely. As an agricultural economist, what worries you most right now about this crisis? I think it's the labor uh, that I mentioned before. That's the part that I think is the most uncertain and um, particularly because of, you know, the a lot of our foodstuffs go through packing plants and go through big mm-hmm. distribution centers mm-hmm. that um, this is a part, honestly, as you said, sometimes about those truck drivers, it's the kind of a part of the food system that seems to go on autopilot, but it's times like this, you look up and think, well, it's not autopilot. <laughs> There's right. Somebody's, somebody's so driving complex. the truck. <laughs> right. um, so that's the part that has me worried the most at the, at the present moment. Well, uh, along those same lines, so if, if labor has you worried the most and, and if things change dramatically, what, I mean, this could change the way agriculture looks over the, both the short term and long term in terms of, of maybe switching or um, amping up more local and, and regional food systems and food production. Do you think that's a possibility 
that, you know, because so that, you know, these operations that don't need as much labor, but, you know, can produce the fruits and vegetables that you were concerned about earlier. I mean, is that something that you think can happen? I, I think there's going to be a lot of sentiment towards um, more protectionism and more local production. I had a friend that sent me a, a text shortly after all the shutdowns started happening and said, I, I bet uh, sales of backyard chicken coops are going to go through the roof. <laughs> right. And I, I think they're right. right. And you, you can see that yeah. in some of the you know, the folks I've talked to that are more direct to consumer marketing from farms, they've had a really big increases in demand. Um, so I, you know, t- frankly, I've been, you know, critical at times of some of the local food movements, not, not the, um, y- you know, not the fact that we enjoy going to farmer's market and buy this, but I think sometimes people have expected too much out of those food systems to solve some of the bigger problems. But at the same time, so I'm saying that as a caveat um, and to give you a sense of where I'm coming from at the same sure. time, I think, you know, it's times like these that I think, you know, do, that does, you know, make us think a little bit more about different forms of resiliency. Uh-huh. And uh, in normal times, um, you know, it's actually one form of resiliency is to trade with other people across the world, because if we have a drought here at home, we can buy food from abroad and we're not so dependent on our local weather conditions. So that's uh-huh. one form of resiliency that, you know, engaging in global markets provides us with, but, but that also opens us up to other problems like if there is a a disease that um you know you know hurts other parts of the world that limits our ability to buy food from them or um you know when you have a lot of workers in one place um and that place shuts down it really has a big impact and makes you think a lot more about you know smaller more disaggregated places if one of those shuts down maybe it doesn't have as big an aggregate effect and so I think I think there'll be a lot of discussion about that in the coming right rightful discussion about that in the coming months and years about sure. building in these different forms of resiliency in our food system. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you brought up, you know, it's you know things like drought. It's not just that we have the COVID-19 crisis right now. We have lots of different crises that affect uh, the food system. We have climate change, we have poverty, we have, you know, migration. All of these things are sort of happening at the same time. And so, you know, I, I think that's part of, of, of the issue here. It's hard to, to foresee what will happen because all of these other things are going on. And, I, you know, climate change is obviously having a big impact on agriculture all over the world. What are your thoughts on, you know, if there's a drought in the Midwest this year, forest fires, you know, in California or, or Australia, on top of, of a pandemic, what, what are, what, what's going to happen? <laughs> Well, let's hold our breath and hope and hope, right. hope and pray it hope and pray it doesn't. Um, you know, I think again in terms of our major agricultural commodities, the corn and soybeans and you know beef and pork, globally in terms of aggregate supplies, we we're, we look like we're in pretty good shape, and mm. it's one of the reasons prices have been somewhat low coming into this. Uh, wheat has actually increased a fair amount in, in the last you know few weeks and months, in large mm. part because. There have been some weather events in other parts of the world, and also because it's the one maybe, you know, close, you know, in some ways more closely tied to some of these staples that people have been wanting. Um, but, you know, so that, that I'm talking about prices because prices are a signal of scarcity. So if prices are fairly mm-hmm. low, um, then that tells us we're okay, at least on the, you know, on the aggregate supply front. The other thing, that another interplay here is that the really big fall that we saw in uh, oil prices that's a benefit to farmers. Um, it's, uh, because, you know, it, it takes, you know, oil and gas to run those tractors and to drive those trucks. Sure. And, um, 
and to put fertilizer in the ground. And so, you know, that should ease the input cost side of things. Uh, at the same time, you know, for corn producers, at least there's been a really big um, uh, problems in the ethanol market, or just, you know, reductions in demand for ethanol. And so that's putting downward pressure on corn prices. So, you know, all that's maybe a way of saying that, that uh, yeah, it's always worrying if we have some big weather events, but at least right now, um, we, there's enough inventory, enough supply out there that it'd take a big movement to make a really big change in one of those markets, I think, at the moment. Again, it's not about supply. It's about distribution, which is how we started this conversation. Yeah, right. uh, I, I'm interested in hearing, you know, you're the head of the Department of Agricultural Economics at Purdue University, which is one of the foremost universities on agriculture in the world. You're doing all sorts of research, not just in the United States, but around the world. How do you think that the COVID-19 crisis will affect the research that's being done at Purdue and other universities since people are, are locked down? Yeah, oh man, I can't tell you how many conference calls and webinars and Zoom meetings I've been on in the last three weeks. It's been nuts. Sure. Um, and, you know, you're right. We have, you know, uh, researchers that have labs, you know, so I'm an economist, fortunately, we don't have that problem. But my other colleagues across the university that have field trials, for example, you know, you have a years of research that may be wrapped up in uh, cell cultures that you have to have refrigerated that require, you know, they've been been you know growing for years or, or you may have field trials that have been you've got funding to conduct or right. you, know, you have the latest variety that you've been working on for a long time and it's just really uncertain at the moment I mean um, you know we've tried to identify some critical areas of research that we want to try to keep going can we do those by social distance you know what are the protocols in place to, to make those happen but you know mm-hmm. frankly a lot of stuff isn't just isn't going to get done uh, this year and so it's not just the farmer side of it. It's, uh, you know, it's the people trying to study the new varieties, the different, you know, ways of trying to add resilience or, uh, you know, mm-hmm. impacts of cover, cover crops, the impacts of, um, you know, of various technologies to reduce uh, nitrogen runoff. All those things, you know, are, are experiments that are happening in fields um, that may very well get shelved this year. So, um, yeah. Not that your listeners necessarily care about this, but you know, there's all kinds of things we got to think about at the university. (laughs) Yeah, how do we get you know for graduate students that are relying on those data to defend their theses? What do we do there? What do we do with you know professors that want to get get tenure? You know, there's all those kind of considerations. I'll say the biggest impact on my department, aside from moving online to um, teaching, is we have a lot of international graduate students, and we had some students that were actually doing field work in Africa um, that. You know, should they stay? Should they come back home? Right. Should, you know, we have some students that are actually stuck uh, abroad, that, you know, because of the restrictions and travel. Wow. And, um, so we're just working the best we can with them. Absolutely. And I mean, that research, you know, it's important to you as 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 scholars and academics. But ultimately, the, that, you know, the sort of lag that will happen in research won't be able to help the communities and the farmers and, and the people who need it the most. And, and that's, you know, another tragedy, I think, uh, of this crisis. I, I want to end on a, a more hopeful note. I mean, you get to work with some of the most brilliant minds, including your own. You know, I've, I've sat on panels with you and, and not known what to say. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm wondering if there's a particular professor or student or, you know, researcher you've been working with that you're, you know, who's keeping you motivated, who's, you know, sort of inspiring you during this really, uh, you know, scary time to be quite frank. I, you know, I'll, I'll, I won't pick on one, but you know, it's really just the culmination, you know, of my colleagues in the academic community who's, who, you know, who are my peers. I've been really impressed with, 
how they've really stepped up and responded and um, just, you know, offering resources, you know, yeah. web pages that are being thrown up overnight to try right. to offer resources, you know, from my colleagues in food science, you know, putting out resources about here's how you deal with worker safety. Uh, is this a food safety risk? You know, here's what we know at the moment. Um, I, you know, I have a, a blog that's under my name. If you're, you know, those of you watching want to go look at it. I've just the other day put a list of all of my just ag econ colleagues that have done webinars or put out publications just in the last few days uh, about market impacts, about how it's moving wow. markets, what to think about in terms of managing risk for the future. So I've been really um, impressed with, you know, my colleagues trying to, you know, in our own little pieces of the world, whatever we mm -hmm. know that we can do to try to help. Um, I was on a call today at, uh, with some of my colleagues uh, in engineering at Purdue who are trying to figure out how to do 3D printed face masks, uh, trying to, oh, you know, amazing. yeah, trying to, you know, we're an engineering school. What can we do to, you know, right. create respirators with low cost, you know, ingredients? Um, that's really amazing. And, and that's why we, that's frankly why we exist. You know, we, we, you know, we're here to teach students and try to help them prepare them for the workforce, but also apply our, you know, what things we know to try to make the world a better place. And it really is heartening to see a lot of my colleagues, you know, really stepping up in this time of crisis. That that's really amazing. So people can find out more information about Jason at jasonlusk.com. Is that where your blog is, Jason? It is. And my, uh, my name's spelled funny. It's got a Y in it. J-A-Y-S-O-N-L-U-S-K. And we'll, ha <laughs> we'll have it available on our website and social media. And if people are interested in learning more about Purdue University, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, it's ag.purdue.edu? I, I believe so. Great. Great. So again, jasonlusk.com, Jason with a Y, ag.purdue.edu. A reminder that uh, Jason's episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Um, so grateful, Jason, that you could join us today. I know how how busy you are um, and, you know, sending thoughts of, of uh, you know, that you continue to stay healthy and well to you and your family. Um, a reminder that at 1 p.m. we'll be back here tomorrow to interview Holly Rippin Butler from the National Young Farmers Coalition. Thanks to all of our viewers. Again, please stay well and thanks so much. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Jason. Good. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Danny. I appreciate it. Thanks for all the good work you continue to do. Oh, you too. I'm I'm always in awe of you, sir. So the world needs <laughs> you. you. So the world needs you. Stay well. Don't go outside. I'm just glad, <laughs> I'm just glad my kids weren't yelling in the background. So we, we survived. <laughs> I get it. I get it. All right. Take <laughs> care. Thanks, Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.